The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. We're living in a golden age of Civil War museums with technology and scholarship bringing us all kinds of wonderful new exhibits. But you know what they say about sausages and legislation? If you want to keep your respect for them, don't watch them being made. Is the same true for Civil War history exhibits? Taylor Studios of Rantoul, Illinois has contributed to exhibits from the Gettysburg Cyclorama to Prairie Grove, Arkansas. We'll find out what goes on behind the scenes, whether it's good for us to know that or not, from Betty Brennan, president of Taylor Studios Incorporated, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, where it is not as wet as South Carolina, fortunately for us. Uh, We hope all our listeners in South Carolina and elsewhere where there's too much water are okay on this first Wednesday in October 2015. A lot of flooding around the country this past week, uh, but not here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, where ECU remains relatively dry. 
I remain not speaking for ECU, just for myself, and likewise our guests will do the same as we always do here on the show. This past week, uh, in addition to bad weather, uh, we did have a lot of rain here, but nothing nothing dramatic like some of our friends elsewhere, and I do hope everybody's okay. Uh, we did have some dramatic football as well. The Michigan Wolverines, my alma mater, once again won in a shutout fashion for the second time in a row, first time that's happened in many years. And the Pirates here at ECU for the second week in a row let the other team build up a big lead in the first quarter, lulled them into complacency, and then crushed them like a walnut. So after two weeks of this kind of outstanding results, I said last week I was giving up college football, and this week I'm really giving up college football. I can't can't take any more of that. Uh, it's just too good. And the third result that was identical to the week before, Greenville FC rained out. We did have enough rain to make the fields too wet to play. So no old person soccer results this week. Sorry. Well, uh, a nice event during the past week was a very uh, pleasant half hour spent with a Civil War talk radio listener, Jim Powers from the Rocky Mountain Civil War Roundtable, dropped in here at World Headquarters in the Brewster Building, uh, interrupting a tour of Civil War sites to come in and say hello. We had a very nice conversation and Jim suggested some uh, very intriguing future guests. I'm working on getting them lined up. Your suggestions are always welcome. Tonight's guest comes to us as a result of a suggestion from a Civil War talk radio listener, which turned out to be providential uh, to have so much in the museum field suggested here because, uh, as I mentioned to you uh, a few weeks ago, I suddenly needed some last-second technical advice involving Heritage Hall, the ECU history facility that we're conceiving of right now, and uh, it just came along at the right time to have someone to, who could uh, give some very helpful advice. Uh, speaking of Heritage Hall, I thank everyone very much who has donated to help make that project become a reality. Uh, we made progress toward Civil War Talk Radio's portion of the $300,000 funding goal uh, to be met by December, but definitely need more of your help. Uh, so uh, this is, I know some of you were able to contribute directly to East Carolina University by sending an email to dyba at ecu.edu. It's not an acronym. It's the name of Chris Dibba. He's the uh, chief development officer. Uh, send him an email. Tell him you're uh, a listener of Civil War Talk Radio and you'd like to support Heritage Hall. He'll get you connected with the proper tax-deductible donation information, and you can help make that a reality. If you'd like to donate directly through the show, it's not tax-deductible then. I have not a 501c3. But it is a goal to be able to present a, a check for $3,000 from the listeners of this show, uh, from the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, and we need more contributions to do that. Now, if you listen to NPR, as you know, you get hit up for money every two or three months. Here on Civil War Talk Radio, it's once every 12 years. In fact, this is the first time in 12 years I've uh, gone to the well and asked you, uh, other than the occasional book fund donation, for which I am grateful. Uh, but the first time we've really needed the listeners to show support and uh, 
demonstrate to the administration of the ECU that uh, people appreciate the value they're getting, that I'm not uh, frittering away my taxpayer-funded time here, although I guess I'm off the clock at 7 at night. Um, And so your support will both contribute to Heritage Hall and help make it a reality and strengthen the hand of Civil War talk radio. So if you've ever thought you'd like to show your support, but if you do it once, then why not do it every week? And you can't do it every week, so why ever do it? Uh, I know I go through that cycle sometimes with worthy causes. Uh, You only have to do it once every 12 years, and this is the year. So uh, Civil War Talk Radio can be contributed to from the impedimentsofwar.org website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. There's a PayPal button there. Send money that way, and it'll go to Heritage Hall, and you will have my most sincere appreciation. Uh, I mentioned tonight's guest gave some advice helping with uh, uh, some of the very initial conceptual thinking about budgeting and so on, but I do want to point out that uh, there's no contractual relationship between ECU uh, and Taylor Studios or Civil War Talk Radio and anybody for that matter. And that is true of all the guests on the show. They are chosen by a panel consisting of me, and the criteria is whether they are of interest to me, with the hope that they'll be of interest to you as a result. And that's the only thing that gets someone on the show. When you send your suggestions, I consider, if it sounds interesting, let's do it. Uh, But no one is on here because of any... Uh, other relationship or because they paid a bribe, there's no payola. Uh, I really hadn't thought of that before. Maybe we can change that and uh, turn this into a a money-making scheme and have really boring guests who have a lot of money. But that has not happened yet, and uh, I don't see it happening. It has not happened for next week's guest because he's already scheduled. That's Thomas Heard Robertson, Jr., uh, who's edited a Confederate surgeon's journal in the regarding the Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865. For the 21st of October at the moment, we've still got an opening in the schedule, and that might stay that way. I'll I'll keep you posted on that. But we'll certainly be back on the 28th. Wade Sokolowski returns to the show. He's the author of To Prepare for Sherman's Coming, The Battle of Wise's Forks, March 1865. Then on November 4th, Chris Samito, author of Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, will be back with us. You can find out who else is coming on any given week from impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney tells us what's happening. You can also do it from the Facebook page of Impediments of War, where you have the fine illustrations of General Sherman with his boombox and other impediments that slowed the Union forces down as they listened to Civil War talk radio. And if they were listening now, they'd be hearing... Uh, from the president of Taylor Studios, Inc., in Rantoul, Illinois, a museum exhibit design firm, and their president, Betty Brennan. Betty, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Okay. Good. Um, if you're on a speakerphone, then we might be getting feedback from that. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, nope. I'm on a landline. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I'm now, now it's sounding good at this end. Okay, uh, well, well, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for uh, checking in tonight. And thanks um, for having me. Let me start by uh, asking about your background. Your firm has done a number of Civil War exhibits I mentioned in the opening, and we'll talk about those and others tonight. But uh, 
but they do other kinds of museums as well. Do you think of yourself as a Civil War person or a museum person? Oh, I would lean more towards a museum person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a broad range of uh, cultural, natural history, science, um, you know, even histories of towns or of people. And so it's a, a wide range of um, topics that we cover. So given that, when you when you get involved in a Civil War project... How do you figure out what you need to know? What uh, what what's the process of, of deciding uh, how you're going to tell a Civil War story? If 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 that's sure, yeah. We, if, you know, often our clients are the expert on their on their resource, whether their resource is uh, Lincoln or uh, you know a thirty thousand acre swamp, um, and so we have to rely on some of their expertise, and then we reach out to others uh, for their expertise, and. But, however, you write content for a broad audience. So to a certain degree, it's good to have, um, you know, n- not to be an expert because we're going to write to often to a, you know, sixth grade level. Um, and so, you know, th- you know, we often, the experts want to write a book and we have to convince them that this has to be quick and engaging and we have to tell the story in a, you know, in an engaging, inspirational way. And uh, yet they do check the facts and, you know, the buttons on the coats and, you know, down to every detail. And so we, we rely on other expertise when it, you know, isn't in our bailiwick. Well, that kind of collaboration is, is one of the fun things in, in my experience about working on museums that uh, uh, you get to work with people in different fields who know different right. things. Let me ask you about how did you get involved in the museum field? Is, is that something you always wanted to do? Well, no, I mean, not necessarily. I have always been entrepreneurial. You know, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, and, you know, a lot of what we do is natural history. I did have a love of the outdoors, um, but also just, you know, even finding artifacts when you're out in the fields and then looking up the history of, of those, and I got into paleontology. But my study is is, is marketing. I have an MBA so I, I started the company with uh, an artist who also had a love of, we both had a love of the history and natural history, and uh, so we're fortunate enough to create a business around that. Well, that's one of the things that uh, I, I think people don't necessarily understand about museums in general, uh, both the design and building of them and also the operating of them, that uh, they have to be run in a business-like manner if they're going to succeed. I, in the, the, the current Heritage Hall project we have going here, I've got people on campus saying, well, you know, we, so once it's built, then we're all done, right? And I say, no, you need yeah. a staff. And they say, well, we could have like a secretary could do it in their spare time or we'll get a grad student to oversee it. I, I'm shaking my head gently and saying, mm-hmm. no, you wouldn't do that with any other facility on campus right. and you'll get it. So, so people don't know how much business goes into what you do. Correct. You know, and certainly running a business of uh, diverse talents from designers to, you know, uh, sculptors to painters, um, you know, you've got to 
coordinate all that and have an excellent process for our client. So I kind of I kind of call us a combination of business and art. But then, of course, our clients have to operate, you know, as a business. There has to be sustainability. You know, you're sort of competing against all the digital technology out there, and, you know, millennials are used to that. So you have to make sure it's very engaging exhibit and keep your visitors up and keep your fundraising up and keep the lights on. It's just like... Just like at home, you got to pay the bills and keep the lights on and um, engage your visitors. So you have they have to be experts in their, uh, you know, as interpreters. And um, so yeah, it's a business. And we often talk to our clients about things like branding and, um, you know, studying their visitors. What do they like? What do they dislike? So it's even analytics. Um, so it certainly has to be run uh, so it's sustainable and. Uh, so it's, it's a business. <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah. well. Many things are in, in different ways, uh, yeah. but they have uh, if they're going to keep doing what they do. Uh, one of the the most dramatic exhibits that your firm has been involved in is the, the Gettysburg Cyclorama, and I know most uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure, have have seen the Cyclorama. If and, and listeners, if you saw it in the old white hockey puck building on Cemetery Ridge. Uh, that was then, and this is now the new sound and light show that accompanies it in the the current vis- visitor center at Gettysburg is just incredible. Uh, how did you get engaged to to be be part of that project? Well, we had you know we had worked with the National Park Service before, so we've we've worked with them several times in other projects. Um, it, it's uh, the architect and the designer brought us in. So that one we didn't design, even though, you know, we do design, build, work. That one we were the fabricator. So they brought us mm-hmm. in as a team member. Often we join up with others in uh, the industry, um, depending on each each person, each person firm's expertise. And so we were brought in um, as a fabricator. They, they know our ability to do scenic work and to um, follow direction and do historic uh, objects and... Uh, and that one was interesting because normally we're creating, if it's a natural environment, you make it look as realistic as possible to match nature. But this mm-hmm. one we had to match the mural, which wasn't necessarily as realistic, you know, as far as the coloring and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we had to really match the mural um, that was surrounding the, the uh, psychorama. Well, it is just a, a spectacular effect. If, if for, for any listeners who haven't been there, or haven't been there in a while, the the cyclorama is a painting, you know, several hundred feet around, and as you stand in the center, there's a a show that lasts. It seems to me it lasts ten minutes, fifteen minutes, but it's hard to tell because time stops. The uh, the lights dim it's nighttime and then it's morning on september or on uh, july 3rd 1863 and uh as the lights change the sound comes on narration goes activities take place and your attention is directed to all these points on the painting but also into the foreground where there are three-dimensional objects that seamlessly blend into the painting in the background Uh, It's really remarkable stuff. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk more with Betty Brennan, whose firm made some of that remarkable stuff. She's the president of Taylor Studios, Inc. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Betty Brennan. She's president of the Taylor Studios, Inc. exhibit design firm, museum exhibit design firm in Rantoul, Illinois. We've been talking about some of the work done on the Gettysburg Cyclorama project. Uh, and Betty, I wanted to ask, do you remember any particular things? I'm, I'm picturing a cannon, I'm picturing military equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, do you remember what yeah. you, your, your people made? Yeah, well, we did all of the um, three-dimensional objects. So it was 18 semi-loads of ground form, and it was a big project. And, you know, we had to make the substructure to hold that cannon. Um, You know, we had to do all the elements that matched into the mural, whether it was a bridge or a fence or a well. Um, And all of that had to, you know, we had to work closely with uh, the the muralist and so forth to make sure that transition. I think if you go look at pictures of it, you you can't quite tell the transition from what we call a ground form into uh, the mural. Uh, but it was a it was a substantial project, and imagine working on that site when it's full of construction workers and getting that much uh, stuff into a you know circular room and not you know protecting that artifact of a mural you know which was was there right after the Civil War, so that was placed in the original Psychorama, so it's it's quite a um, historic artifact in itself, and so you really have to protect that. And so we had to work in a tricky environment and uh, bring 18 semi-loads of our work into the space and piece it all back together with it seamlessly. So you had to match all those seams and, you know, make sure you plan correctly all those elements and how they came into the building and, and so forth. Well, and, and it really looks marvelous. I mean, it, the thing is, something like that has the, the risk is it can, it can look cheesy. I mean, it can sure. 
really backfire. Uh, but the Gettysburg Cyclorama is is fabulous, and, and I highly recommend any visitor who hasn't seen it uh, need, needs to go take a look whenever you get a chance. Um, in the opening, I mentioned the, the line about how you don't want to watch some things being made. Uh, I know that when I was a kid, I loved going to museums. My dad briefly worked in a museum before he became an art teacher, and it was just always a highlight anywhere I went. And I never planned for a career in them, but it worked that way. I went from graduate school into uh, working for a museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana for nine years. And I discovered then after I knew about how how things go behind the scenes, now when I go to museums, I can't help but look at a mount with a critical eye and wonder <laughs> why they did that. And you know, I look for the seams, as it were, uh, that you were describing. Right. I still enjoy them, but the magic is a little bit diminished. Uh, but the appreciation is increased. I, w- I wonder what's your response when you're on a busman's holiday and you visit a museum? Uh, yeah, it's hard to not have that critical eye when you work in the industry. And i got to imagine the uh, the museum staff finds it odd when you're looking behind a graphic panel or, like, <laughs> tapping on it going, what did they make that out of? How did they make yeah. this ice? You know? <laughs> yeah, so, so sometimes it's hard to actually be uh, a museum visitor because you're uh, certainly viewing it from a different perspective. Um, but, you know, I think you mentioned, you know, do you want to have it, watch it made? And I think often that is fun here. Mm-hmm. You know, we, uh, people love to visit our shop. You know, often the, the, the pizzazz comes in the last 10%. So they can have an awfully critical eye when, uh, you know, when a mural is only 50% done and it doesn't look like much. Or, you know, but sometimes the watching it be built is, is incredible, too. Now, your firm does a lot of uh, life cast figures. Uh, they, I saw on your website there's some really mm-hmm. impressive, uh, you know, life size figures, and that that I recall again visiting studios where where that gets done. It's a kind of an odd experience because you're uh-huh. talking to somebody, and just over their shoulder is, you know, a, a life size vampire or a life size <laughs> woolly mammoth or or a, a life size uh, Civil War soldier. Right. But everybody's very calm about it because they're not moving. You know, they're not real. Uh, but I mean, tell me about that. how do those? How do you make them? Yeah, and actually, one of the sites where um, I believe we did a tremendous job was at the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. And the director at the time basically set the bar really high. He said the emotion of those um, scenes were going to come through with these figures and the emotions on their face, and that, you know, we had to pull this off. <laughs> and and I, I believe we did. But uh, often, we, you know, we're taking molds of, of real people. So for that particular job, um, we had Lincoln's Challenge, which is here in our neighborhood, and we got sort of the neighborhood involved, and were able to take molds uh, of them. And, of course, in the Civil War, people were smaller, so we had to be very particular of their size and facial features and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, for the Marine Museum, we, we actually take full-body molds of modern-day Marines and then incorporate them into historic stories. So you kind of accomplish two stories in one, um, but it's extremely realistic and detailed. Uh, for Civil War, we have to go to experts about the clothing and, and all of that and getting the body position correct. And if they're touchable by the public, you've got to do the substructure um, so it's very durable and strong. Uh, some of them are outdoors, and so you know, you've got to beef those up quite a bit. Uh, we have some on like the USS Midway ship, so it's also got to withstand you know, sea spray kind of thing. 
and uh, yeah, so you just build an armature and uh, you make a mold and you cast, and um, they look very realistic. The uh, you mentioned the Marine Museum. That's the National Museum of the Marine Corps. Where's that located? It's in uh, Triangle, Virginia. Okay, so visitors Quantico. may want to see that. Yeah, another. Uh, it's a great museum. Yeah, if you're driving actually up I-95, uh, uh, you can't miss it uh, from the outside. Uh, spectacular architecture evoking the Iwo Jima flag raising. The uh, well, so these figures in the the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg uh, again, they're they're they are very dramatic and what uh, sometimes. Again, drawing on my own experience, there are times when you want a full, realistic model, and there are times when a a white uh, study figure works better. Mm-hmm. And and I see again on your website, you've got uh, places where you've done that. What mm-hmm. what's your experience with that? When when do you want to make something that looks like a real person? When is it actually more effective to have something that looks uh, like, like a white statue? Yeah, I think it's on the story. Everything evolves around the story. And what do you want to stand out? You know, um, and, and also sometimes budget is involved. And so you have to make um, decisions based on that. And so life casts can be more expensive than, um, you know, a white figure. Um, but if you want a uniform to stand out, you maybe it's white, or depending on the um, immersive experience that you have around you, you want to go. You may want to go more abstract, you know. So we've done more abstract figures, or even more abstract, um, you know, nature scenes. For instance, in Arkansas, the Prairie Grove, we actually made the trees out of rebar because we wanted um, a stark sort of feeling when you came in there. And so sometimes leaving things to your imagination actually makes you feel. Uh, you know, immersed a bit more. So imagination is is important, and so sometimes abstract works. Betty, let me ask you about the uh, the Lincoln Museum in particular. Uh, that that is uh, uh, near to my interest as a uh, uh, having worked at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for a number of years. Uh, I've not yet seen your handiwork at the Lincoln Heritage Museum, but this, I understand, is part of Lincoln College in Lincoln, Illinois? It is, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's on campus. It, I, I saw that museum uh, 12, 15 years ago. It was just a square room with glass cases. It was a museum of museums. It looked like <laughs> what it looked like uh, 30 years ago. Right. And I, I without having seen it, I've... I've uh, a visitor, a Civil War listener, talk radio listener, has uh, written to me about it and tells me it's it's fantastic. It's it's really engaging. Um, can you describe what what you've done there? Sure, you bet. Yeah, there's um, there are two galleries, and uh, one of the galleries is a, a very immersive, interactive AV experience, and it starts in uh, Ford's Theater. And uh, uh, it's it's a li- what we call a life review, and so um, you, you start in the theater and you're immersed in it, and it's 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 as if uh, you know he and you guys will correct me if I'm wrong. I think he lived for another nine hours, and it's mm-hmm. as if he's going back and reviewing his life, and so you walk through this experience with video and objects that you can touch, so you can experience different things as different visitors, um, and learn about you know his childhood, his his character, his values, um, you know, his experiences through life. 
and it's it's quite an amazing experience. Um, you know, we had some Lincoln scholars go through, and you know, of course, we wanted their opinion, and and they came out in tears and were just ecstatic. So, you know, when you talked about how do we understand our subject matter, well, there was the challenge, <laughs> and there are a lot of Lincoln scholars, and and so we felt uh, very good when they came out and said we did a wonderful job. And then there is another exhibit hall, and it's more traditional on the uh, first floor, and it, it's, you know, some of the artifacts they had. And even though it was that museum of museums, they had some tremendous uh, artifacts. And so um, we displayed those and some timelines, and a lot of that stuff is movable because they also have events in that space. Um, I, you know, highly encourage or, uh, your listeners to, to go see this museum and let us know what you think. And the, and the challenge is is that it's, you know, 45 minutes from Springfield, Illinois, where um, the museum, the Lincoln Library is, and they had, you know, $45 million to tell their story. So we had a much, much smaller budget, but we wanted to get that audience, and I think uh, we achieved success there. Well, that, that's certainly the, the response that I'm hearing. I want to give credit to uh, Scott Schrader, the president and program chair of the Monroe County Civil War Roundtable in Bloomington, Indiana. He was uh, uh, heard you were going to be on the show, and he visited the Lincoln Heritage Museum and sent me a, a note talking about it. Uh, one of the points he, he made was that as you go through the Lincoln uh, – as you go through this Lincoln Life review, uh, that you can hear a, a clock ticking throughout, as if reminding you of the the impending mortality. Yeah. And when I heard it described, uh, both the the concept and then this clock aspect, again, just as as the cyclorama could be cheesy if it's not done right. Uh, this sounds it could be almost ghoulish or morbid, uh, but Scott writes, uh, I thought this concept very interesting and thought-provoking, and I thought it was executed well. Uh, he liked it, and he, okay. he knows a fair amount about Lincoln. Uh, it can have an Alice in Wonderland effect uh, a bit, mm-hmm. because it's a dreamlike phase. Um, but I sure hope people don't think it's cheesy. <laughs> we certainly don't. And uh, we've gotten rave reviews, and uh, it's, a, it's a different approach, an immersive approach, um, you know, to engage a broad audience, you know, getting millennials and a broad audience to, you know, embrace this type of storytelling. Now, the, one of the things that he raised about this same exhibit, so going through the, the part where you're going through the life review, it, it is by some necessity a, a, a one-line story. That is, you're you're going in one direction, you're following the chronology. There's no, as he perceived it, there was no real room for the visitor to to double back to to uh, set one's own agenda. Uh, is, is that uh, accurate? Or? Yeah, that is true of that that particular experience. Of course, you can go through again, um, but it is a timed experience, um, and so you go from each event in his life to the next event. And you know, like even in Ford's Theater, the doors open for you, and so right. um, you you have to walk through these events in his life, um, and it is it is a timed experience. I mean, so I can it's see a that being approach than yeah, a lot of museums yeah. take for sure. And I can see it being very powerful. It's it's one of those things. Uh, uh, Scott makes an observation in his note that uh, you can't be everything to all people in any mm-hmm. exhibit or actually in anything in life. Uh, and so you're always going to have visitors with different expectations. Uh, 
so who did you expect? Who do you see? Who do you see as the audience for this particular museum? Well, certainly, um, certainly the the museum campus and so forth. But you know, geographically, we're hoping to draw people that would also go to Lincoln's Library. So people that love Lincoln, but also just. Um, general interest. You know, certainly in Illinois, Lincoln is a broad topic, and uh, we wanted to, sh- to tell his story in a different way. So it is a, a fairly broad audience, which um, actually most of our clients have. So you have to try to engage every age group and um, diversity, um, y- you know, in your exhibits. And you're exactly right. You're not going to please everybody. And, uh, you know, if people are used to a more traditional approach, that might be disconcerting that, you know, you have to go through you know, kind of in a programmed way. Um, but, it, it, you know, we, we even want people that are driving through Illinois. We hope they would stop by and, and see, you know, parts of Illinois and, and learn his story. Well, I, I hope they certainly will do that. We're going to take another short break. We're talking tonight with Betty Brennan of Taylor Studios, Rantoul, Illinois, museum exhibit design firm. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Betty Brennan. She is the president of Taylor Studios, Inc., a museum exhibit design firm responsible for much of the work at the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, also the Gettysburg Cyclorama, and we've just been talking about the Lincoln Heritage Museum in Lincoln, Illinois, on the campus of Lincoln College, chartered as Lincoln University. Uh, I have a 
honorary PhD from Lincoln College, chartered as Lincoln University, which I don't think I've mentioned on the show in 12 years. I've repeatedly told uh, all listeners about my Harvard degree because I'm trying to get my money back on that. Uh, my money is worth out of it is what I mean by that. Uh, but I've never mentioned the Lincoln College degree, so here's my chance tonight. Glad I got that mm-hmm. done. Um, Betty, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the the uh, well, the comment you, we were ending with about the uh, the need to compete for different uh, audiences and how people have different expectations. And I'm reminded that when in 1995 we opened the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I remember Tom Schwartz, who I think was the Illinois State historian at the time. Uh, kind of, you know, cocking his head to the side, saying this was Disneyfied. We had there's a lot of high tech stuff that we had put in, and uh, you know, it was pretty advanced for its day, I thought. Mm-hmm. And then uh, ten years later, he was uh, involved in the the Lincoln Presidential Library, mm-hmm. which takes the Disney thing to quite another level. And right. one of the criticisms of that museum is that it didn't when it opened it still really doesn't have that many artifacts it's yeah. mostly storytelling with with effects right. uh, how, where do you see the role of artifacts in what you do well you know i'm i'm still more of a traditionalist in that sense even though i think you have to um appeal to a broad audience you know uh currently millennials aren't coming at the rate of the population so we have to engage a broad audience but i think artifacts you know, are really truly the heart of things. You know, you can't put all of them out there. You have to be very particular about the story that you tell so that it's engaging. Um, but I think that's often the heart and soul of a museum is, is their artifacts. Not every museum and not every type of museum, but, uh, you know, from a historical standpoint, I think they bring things to life. You know, to to see, you know, I, you know, I can't remember all the artifacts that were at Lincoln College, but, you know, I think they have a desk and um, some hair, and, you know, that, that sounds odd, but it's it's really... I think it creates an emotional response, and I think a lot of people expect to see artifacts. I mean, that's what museums were founded for, is to preserve our collection of our history for for humanity's sake. And that's how I, you know, fell in love, you know, to a certain degree, you know, finding an artifact out in a bean field as a kid and then going, wow, what is the story behind this? And And that's engaging. Now, one place where your firm did uh, design work was the Prairie Grove State Battlefield Park in Arkansas, uh, where I guess the big artifact is the battlefield itself, one of the better preserved uh, battlefields in the the Trans-Mississippi area. How did you get engaged in that project? We uh, we actually work with Arkansas State Parks uh, quite a bit. We have we're doing several projects with them, and so that was uh, we're currently working with them now, doing a project at Logoli, and then another one at Jacksonport. And so we're you know seventy percent of our clients are repeat clients, and so Arkansas State Parks is one of them. So it was uh, through the state parks that we got the the contract. And and what uh, you know when you have a battlefield that's sort of the main attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the same is true at Gettysburg. But people also want to see the cyclorama. Uh, what what do you show them at Prairie Grove? You know, it's just more. Uh, it was the story of the battle because it's it's not. You know, there's not a lot of interpretive panels, and you know, Gettysburg has audio tours and mm-hmm. and uh, you know 
maybe more interpreters and so forth. This one, you know, has less of those resources. So to tell the personal stories and the story of the battle and how it was fought in winter and, you know, how they they suffered through the battle and, um, you know, the types of the tools they were using, the types of ammunition and and guns, and just more detail. But we always encourage our visitors, you know, often our clients, the resources outside. And so we always encourage them to, you know, go out to the battlefield itself. But this gives you a more in-depth story. So as I'm engaged currently, I mentioned to our listeners at the beginning of the hour helping – uh, get underway a history exhibit. I'm not quite sure what form it will take. Museum is probably too too concrete a word, but uh, an exhibit at least here of, of university history. Uh, it's the result. The fact that we're building this here on campus is the result of a uh, controversy over how to think about people from the 19th century who. Once were unthinkingly honored, and then now people know that they held 19th century views, and some people want to unthinkingly condemn those people. And uh, as a historian, I'm saying, no, let's let's think about them in context and understand them fully, and that means exhibits and, and being thoughtful about it. But it brings up the point that every museum has roots somewhere, uh, often uh, highly politicized, and uh, uh, this means when you're working on an exhibit, your client has may, may want different things. Uh, you may have even different parties within the, the client organization who want different things. Uh, how do you deal with, with trying to figure out who's, who's actually in charge, who's telling you what they want? Uh, do, you, do you experience that kind of issues when you collaborate with, uh, with clients? Sure, you know, and we up front sort of set, we try to set some parameters. Almost all our clients, it is a committee-based, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, decisions on things, but, you know, we run that, we try to ask them up front who will make the final decision, because if it's, um, you know, if it's completely a democracy, it would take years and years and years, and you might not get it done. So somebody's got to make True. the call. And, and uh, yet we try to engage the whole group, and, um, you know, we start with the story. So we start with creating a central theme and sub-themes, and that is done with the client and with the group. And we, you know, explain the importance of that and how it's important to stick. It's just like with a, a company or a university, uh, you know, sticking with your mission. Um, it's important to tell the story in that way. And so we get that buy-in, and we work um, gradually then through the design process using each person's expertise as we get to different content areas. Well, this is, um, I'm trying to think, how can I work a free consult out of you while we're having this conversation for Heritage <laughs> Hall? Uh, but what I do want to ask, um, well, a couple of things. One was I, I was looking at your blog in preparation for this and uh, uh, saw a, a message to people in the public history world uh, I'll, I'll call it a tough love message pointing out that a lot of people don't make a lot of money in this field it, it's a tough field it's so interesting that so many people want to go into it uh, mm-hmm. my students in public history love museums and love uh, whatever era of the past most grabs them but but anyone will do and they really want to do it mm-hmm. and therefore the law of supply and demand operates and there's such a supply of talented people who want to be involved that uh, museums can afford to, to keep wages relatively low right uh, and 
it's hard to say why how that will ever change or whether it, you know whether it would ever change mm-hmm. uh, but your thought is uh, I guess what you said at the beginning it's a business you just have to uh, compete and, and see what happens yeah is you know that and fair? I, yeah absolutely and I think um, you know just in, in every profession that you know the better you are the better um, you will be compensated for those skills. And and so if your museum's extremely engaging or you move up to the director position of a national museum, you know, the the pay may be there. But, you know, most of our uh, most of the ambitions of, of uh, the folks I work with, they want to work with the content. And because mm-hmm. there it, it is, it is basic economics. It's supply and demand. And uh um you know, I think if you, I think I know which one you're you're thinking of. You know, I have a love of horses, but I, you know, I knew at age, you know, when I was choosing my mm-hmm. degree that I, oh, I would not be a good horse trainer. I couldn't compete with everybody in the world that wanted to be a good horse trainer, and so I, I chose a different path. Um, and a, a very fortunate one. I get to tell stories in museums. How wonderful is that? But, uh, you know, I, I knew that economic decision when I was a teenager. Ironically, it did help me get through college because I did train a guy's horses, and I ran out of money, and he boarded both me and my horse. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that's the only time horses <laughs> save me money. <laughs> uh, well, that, so it, that, it's I, a choice of love. <laughs> you know, you know, when you go into this profession, more than likely, you're not going to get rich. But you know, so it's it's sort of a choice. You know, do you, do you want to? do this thing that you're passionate about, but, you know, maybe you live in a smaller home. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, so that's a personal choice. Well, it, it is, I think, for a lot of us in, in academia and, and those who study the Civil War, uh, one of the concepts I remember learning in law school was the idea of descent from market values, that uh, if the whole world values a big house, but you really value being on a battlefield at the same hour in the morning that the attack was launched in 1864 and, and having that evocative experience and learning more about it, then you can live a rich, full life uh, mm-hmm. getting what you value, which may not be sure. cash. Uh, and, and that and working in museums, I think a lot of people feel that way. They, they enjoy what they do so much, they're, they're willing to accept uh, less compensation. Yeah. I know I have a lot of... When I talk to people who are still lawyers, I, I quit that many years ago. Uh, none of them ever say, "Oh, you know, you'd be better off if you'd just been a lawyer the whole time. You could be unhappy and mm-hmm. rich and divorced and alcoholic and all these things that happen to." <laughs> I know, and uh, a lawyer, <laughs> and a lawyer. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, so exactly. I, I, I think pursuing your passions um, comes with sacrifices. You know, it's it's you have to make those personal choices, and there's, um, you know, to pursue what you love and your passion um, can. It means you have to make sacrifices. So, does your firm have any Civil War contracts on the horizon right now, or projects underway? No, we don't currently. Um, we're still working with the Marine Museum, which is an ongoing um, project, but. Right now, I'm I'm quickly going through my head here. Um, wish my hard drive was bigger, but no, I don't think we currently have any under contract. Okay. That, but it, if there's any out there, please send them to us. <laughs> well, if if anyone's listening who's involved in a uh, in in a museum environment, uh, here's a firm you would want to take a look at and, and look at their work online and see what they do. What what is the address of your website? It's uh, Taylor Studios, which is plural. dot uh, com. Okay, so if you want to see the kind of work done at 
the uh, Lincoln Heritage Museum in Lincoln, Illinois, or the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, or the uh, Prairie Grove in Arkansas, the Gettysburg Cyclorama, and so on, the, the National Museum of the Marine Corps. These are all uh, places where you can get an idea what kind of work your firm does. Well, it is uh, always interesting to talk about this sort of thing. I, I, let me ask you to sum up uh, in, in just a minute, which is all we have left. Uh, is there a future for museums? You, you've mentioned millennial generation several times that uh, people used to go places because they couldn't see stuff. Now, any image in the world, any video in the world is at our fingertips. Uh, what gets people to get in the car and go to a museum? Oh, I think it's still the big wow. You know, we're we're actually doing some research around children and what they remember in museums and institutions. And you know, you you know, I'm familiar with the Field Museum, and I still remember my first time there as a child. And you you, know, you walk in, and you see that grand hallway, you see the elephants, and and um, it's it's an inspirational experience. I think museums just have to keep on top of their game. We're still the museums are still. Uh, more visited than all national sporting uh, groups combined. So more people go to museums than even football and baseball and so forth. Yes, it's still highly visited, but we have to stay on top of our game. And, you know, as a traditional type of industry, sometimes it's hard to embrace things like technology. You know, you talked about the disinification of exhibits, but we have to listen to our audience, and it has to be more diverse. And, you know, so we have to get uh, different ethnic groups coming more often and make them feel safe and welcome and think about what they want. We have to listen to our audience and, uh, you know, make sure we're providing, you know, things of value, even even having evening events because people are so busy. And so I see that change happening in museums, and they're beginning to embrace even social media, more, more uh, analytics around their data, making sure they're doing their visitor studies. And I, th- I think there is a future for museums. And, uh, uh, you know, I even read recently that children that go to museums are much more likely to be successful in their educational career than those that don't. You know, so it's very impactful on the educational process uh, for everyone. Well, I, I, I will not disagree with that at all. I do think, I, I certainly remember many childhood visits that were formative and uh, made a great impression on me. And I know a lot of our visitors, visitors uh, a lot of our listeners were museum visitors and feel the same way. Well, Betty, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.